What's up, investors? This is your weekly news update for April 10th. Happy Easter. We are going to be talking about interest rates, some foreclosures, and what are the top new net migration markets. And we are going to be finishing up with a question about what do I do with my money that I just loaded to my infinite banking. First article here coming from Multi-Housing News. Commercial multifamily mortgage delinquency rates remain low in the fourth quarter 2022. However, I have started to see some documents of some foreclosures happening from people I know personally of giving loans back to the bank. And I got to believe that these some of these projects are the ones that were underwritten very narrowly. And that is why when things fall, it's the weakest that fall first. So you're starting to see that happen. I haven't really thought too much or come to a decision at the very least if I am want to focus on buying these types of properties but like some of these loans, maybe you bought the property for 55, 60 million and you have a $45 million loan on or $50 million loan on the property. It looks like it's going to foreclosure and you can pick it up for about 90, the loans for 90 cents of the dollar, which means you can pick up the properties for 70 cents. On the, Obviously, that is a good deal by most people's perspectives, but to me, I don't know, you pick up a deal that's been maybe likely neglected, deferred maintenance for at least six months. And so you got to know going in what you're getting. And you don't really have the ability to do that when you're buying it from a bank in a foreclosure process. But I think the important thing to note is that it's happening. And I'm personally scratching my head if I want to capitalize on that opportunity. Realtor.com reports that Freddie Mac mortgage buyers continue to edge down, providing window of opportunity for home buyers. So the Fed is meeting in May at least a couple more times this year. Everybody believes that there's going to be at least one more rate hike. So I don't know if it's going to happen this next month in May, but it'll likely happen again. But what you're starting to see right now, at least for the last several weeks, is interest rates that you're, you're paying on a mortgage or what we would pay for a new project are coming down slightly. So this is creating a little bit of a buying window or selling window, depending how you look at it, if you're the buyer or the seller. And this is this kind of illustrates, although there is a very closely related link between if the Fed raises rates and what you pay at the kind of like you pay at the pump or you're paying at your when you're getting a mortgage, it generally goes up. It's far indicated on the 10 year treasury and on how it impacts the real mortgage rate. The interest rates obviously have been skyrocketing and going up and up, but this is a little bit of a reaction where it's cooling down on the price that people are paying. What's going to be probably happening is more expensive strict lending helps to usher in the long-term health of the economy. But the downside is that the borrowing for large purchases, including a home purchase, may be relatively more challenging in the short term. What it means, based on the article, potential home potential buyers continue to face elevated mortgage rates and home prices, making buying less accessible than a week ago. However, home prices continue to show signs of softening a welcome development for buyers as we were recently in a very hot seller's market. If you guys are interested in joining our free investor club, you can go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. This is separate from our family office, Ohana Mastermind, which we have well over, I think, 105, 110 investors, and that is a paid group. 
but our investor club, which you can join at simplepassivecashflow.com slash club is free. However, we do urge you to complete that onboarding call there as soon as possible so we can get to know you and you can get to know us. Visual Capitalist came up with this great graphic. It depicted the top 30 banks with the most uninsured deposits. So that's not a good thing. What uninsured deposits are is, as you guys know, there's a $250,000 amount that the federal government, FDIC, will step in if there's any kind of bankruptcy of the bank. It's a way to ensure the mindset of depositors because you can't run a system with people having sporadic runs on the banks here or there. Some of the banks have a higher number of uninsured deposits and Silicon Valley Bank or the late Silicon Valley Bank was one of those. They led the nation at 93.8% of their deposits over that individual threshold. So what that means is a guy might have had half a million dollars in the bank to run his business, but that's over that $250,000 threshold. There are a bunch, 10 other banks on here. I'll read them off real quickly. Bank of New York Mellons, State Street Bank and Trust, Signature Bank, Northern Trust, Citibank, CIB Bank, HSBC Bank, City National Bank, First Republic Bank. Most of these banks are more of that regional side, the smaller banks, which I don't know if I would quite recommend. And lately, there's been a bit of consolidation with people going to the big three banks, which are JP Morgan, Chase, Citibank and Bank of America. The big bank on here to take note or thing I keyed on, in on, you look at the total assets is Citibank. They are probably maybe 10 of these banks in one, but if you just combine their, the regional banks relative to size. So they are a big player and they're at 73%. I'm not saying that Citibank is bad or anything like that. It's just how they do business. And one could say that the percent of uninsured deposits is could be a leading indicator for think, something to be on the lookout for. And again, I don't really see Citibank any problems with them coming. If anything, it'd be from the smaller regional banks under $300 billion of assets. Um, if you guys want to check this out on the YouTube channel, you, you guys can see the whole chart here. And here's the second page of that. See if your bank is on here. The question we get a lot of times is, what bank are we doing for our own banking? And we'll typically go with the top three banks. Most Mostly Chase, they are the big behemoth. They are the big bank, the biggest bank of all. And as far as security, I think you can't beat them. I'm not too concerned with getting the best rates on our operating budget sitting in their accounts. So that, that's why I don't really see the need for us to go to a smaller, more riskier regional bank. We also use Bank of America too, and they are also pretty secure. Also, they're at $2,400 billion of assets. But yeah, I think it's probably shook a lot of unsophisticated investors and unsophisticated financially people that there's this perception that Banks are risky and they could collapse at any moment. The whole things with the last SVB and First Republic, you know, uninsured deposits was obviously one issue, but it's the investments that they were investing in. And as the, and I'll quote it from the Fed and I'll quote it from the news headlines. And my personal belief too is that it wasn't really a systemic issue. It's just banks not doing what they're supposed to do and paying attention to really what their main business is, putting their depositors' money into investments that are safe and not just falling asleep at the wheel and just in particular buying 10-year treasuries when the one to three-year treasuries 
yield a better return and are probably better investments in this current environment of hawkish rate increases. I don't want to beat this to death. There's a bit of a summary on what exactly happened with the SVP bankruptcies and some of the other banks. But you guys can read that if you guys want to check that out on the YouTube channel. We'll go into the next headline, which is the U.S. Census Bureau released the 2021-2022 domestic net migration, which is an important thing if you're in a real estate investor, because it's essentially what is the incoming, the net migration of people coming in, it takes into account people leaving and people coming. Um, I'll read it in from one to 10. The number one is Jacksonville, Florida. Number two, Tampa, Florida. Florida's great. I'm not a big fan of Tampa, Florida or down south there because of the hurricanes. I'm hearing of some people having trouble to qualify for or getting even getting insurance because a lot of the insurance carriers are just not covering that southern part of the state of Florida and especially Louisiana, Mississippi there. But again, number three, Austin, Texas, four, San Antonio, Orlando, Raleigh, Nashville, Dallas, Charlotte, and then Phoenix, Arizona, rounding up the top 10. If you guys want to check out the YouTube channel, and we have a lot of great graphics from here. We also have all the years prior. So you can see how Jacksonville came up to be the top and what markets are the ones falling, such as like Las Vegas was up there back in 2016, 2018 but they're not even on the top 10 at this point for net migration, which is not a good thing. And you're, you're seeing how Austin was the top for the last three years and how now it's fallen to number three. You already released a, a report on US multifamily rents resume rise after a five month pause. So what basically happened after the pandemic in 2021, rents skyrocketed across the board. And that's again, where we can call it cause and effect, or maybe there was a correlation between inflation during that period. But right around July, last summer, July, 2022, you started to see rents cool off and just remain neutral, which you know, typically rents are always raising very slightly, but so to for it to be flatline how it was for the past, I want to also call it out and say about past year is pretty unprecedented. But you combine that with the fact that there was this rampant rent growth, it makes sense. Rents never really decrease, maybe ever so slightly over the last six months, but now it's definitely coming back up as of March, 2023. So all is right with the world. We're getting back to maybe you can call it the slack coming out of the system. I think you're hearing that theme a lot in many different facets. Again, it's all coming from the pandemic made everything come to a standstill for about a month, a quarter, whatever you want to call it. Maybe it differs in different sectors of the economy, different industries. But then you had that rampant pent up demand come in and then that kind of that slack working its way throughout the system. Finishing up the report here, with a, as we always do with a little bit of lesson learned, or in this case, a very common question that I get from investors. They've, they've taken our e-course on infinite banking. If you guys want more information on it, you can go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash banking. It's a tactic that I would recommend for most people over a million dollars net worth as a means to making money in two places getting a little bit of asset protection on your funds in here and creating a bit of a cash reserve account that is still making money for you that you can use when you push past the three, four, five million dollar net worth scale when you start to get to end game. The question that you know gets asked is what kind of investments would you best use for the money that I put in my infinite banking that I take out as a loan? 
since when you take a loan from your infinite banking, you have to pay an interest on that loan. And now, you know, more so than ever, taking a loan from your infinite banking makes so much more sense than taking a loan from your HELOC or getting a refinance on your home. About a year or two ago, it, it was a no-brainer to get a HELOC or refinance because your interest rates were like 3%. Now that has more than doubled and it has gone past the point of most infinite banking loans at around 4 or 5%. So now, you know, as smart investors who are well-connected, we always say, what's the best thing at this point? And we have multiple tools. And the whole reason why you have infinite banking is as things change in the economy or certain interest rates go up in certain areas. Now, for example, the infinite banking, taking a loan from there becomes the better play to make. About a year ago, six months, even maybe as late as six months ago, some more sophisticated investors were doing what's called a cash value line of credit. So what that means is maybe they had some money in their infinite banking, their life insurance account, and they went to a third-party bank to get a assign the collateral to the bank and the bank gave them a loan on there at a little bit lower rate the insurance carrier were. So the insurance carrier gave them 5% loan to access the capital and that third-party cash value line of credit third-party bank would give them, say, three, three and a half percent. So gave them even more of an arbitrage game there. But since then, all those third-party banks, they float with the Fed rate. And therefore, those cash value line of credits have gone up quite a bit and are no longer the smart play or the viable source of capital. It becomes just the good old-fashioned, take money from your large insurance carrier, take a loan from it there and pay the 5% there. Luckily, because it's life insurance, it should get that tax-free benefit, which is another reason why we use this particular strategy. But you got to configure it the right way. you got to configure it where with low commissions and, your, and that's why we say we'll be careful of people who create these policies because that's really all it's how greedy your life insurance agent is. So that's why we say price it out. We can... Our team can price it out for you and we'll probably beat everybody. What <laughs> it says that but you got to understand the strategy. And for those of you guys who are already using the strategy, you know, the question is, what the heck do I use this money for? And the answer is you can use it for everything. For new investors, what they like to do is they like to offset the debt service. They're paying 5%. They want to directly offset it with something a little bit more quicker timeline. So Although it makes more sense for a sophisticated investor to go into bigger equity deals where you get higher returns, the downside of that is waiting. Therefore, you know, you're going to, if you really are uncomfortable with paying a debt service to your infinite banking or very similar to like your HELOC, either take out an extra amount, stick it in the bank and have that pay your debt service for a year or two. And just, it's a mental mindset thing. It was all it really is. Or go into things that give you instant cash flow. AHP was a great example of that. Or this is a no longer a viable option, but when BlockFi was around, not to say anything about the investment, but that gave you instant cash flow right there. We have a preferred equity plus fund, which is our in-house product for simple passive cash flow investors, where we're paying 12 to 13% a year, but more importantly, 1% every month. So you're able to pretty much instantly pay your debt service from that, basically take half of that. And the other half is your investment return, which can grow your net worth. 
and at least get your money working, especially if you've got lazy debt equity in your house, not doing anything or some money that you prefer not to have exposed to the market volatility, which I'm sure is more to come in the future. Most investors will do and what the smart play to do is to take most, maybe even 100% of their cash value out as a loan and get it deployed in higher yielding investments. And this is just the arbitrage game is all it is. This is what banks do, right? Banks pay depositors a certain rate and they turn around and they give it out to business owners or people who need loans or home mortgages and they using the money and they are also making that spread on it. Banks are play unfair. They have an unfair advantage because of fractional reserve banking. They can get leverage to a crazy factor, which we can't do as pers as personal people. But nevertheless, we, we need to play the same game. And I guess it's more important for us to play the same game. Paying 5% on your money in your different banking while making 10, 15% elsewhere, it all comes down to the arbitrage. And this is the concept that a lot, not a lot of people want to hear, but this financial building is really all about a game of inches. You're going to, it's not a get rich quick scheme. It's all about slowly, incrementally increasing your net worth by take, making these small incremental arbitrage gains. But the important thing is you're making money. You're not making money for yourself, but your money is making money for you. And let me repeat that. There are two kinds of money that, makes money on itself where you're not doing anything and there's money that you're making most of the business ordinary income coming from your day job or your 1099 if you have a business but you need that ordinary income to get the principal and capital but once you have that principal capital whether you have a hundred grand in your lazy debt equity in your house or you know you have equity elsewhere in your retirement accounts to get that not working to its full potential, you don't need to get 20, 25, 30% plus or, or higher. But to just get a reliable 10 plus percent is good enough as a starter. And once you get all that lazy equity deployed, now not only will that get you more principal to invest even more, but then you start to look for, okay, what else can I do to improve on the 10 to 15% that I'm getting in this current investment? For what I see, most people have a lot of low-hanging fruit. That's why we say book that onboarding call, join the club, and we can take a look at your personal situation. And I'll tell you exactly where it is. That's your low lazy debt equity. I think the last call I had, I was talking to an investor and they had money three places. Their primary residence, they had one rental property. And they had a bunch of money that they had just sitting in their stock market account, their IRA, that they weren't quite thrilled of. And I, I'm a man of analogies and to try and keep things fun and at least entertaining for myself. And I was like, let's well, three children, right? The, as much as you key in on the stock market or the rental, the money in the rentals, that problem child that you have that you, you focus on too much. Really, it is. It's the kid, the problem child you need to be focusing on is that quiet one which in this case, in this analogy, is that home equity that was least the focus of this investor. But that's where we focus and we have a conversation. And I'm not just trying to push down my dogma on why this is the certain way, but I explain my reasoning. And typically people see the benefits and like the reasons why they want to get their money working in their house first, as opposed to take the money out of stock market or their existing rental properties that's making money there. People do with it. I step back from there and that's their problem. But at least I think my my job is to be focused the 
where it should be because most people's problems that I see is they're just that it's a lack of a network. Most people don't have any sophisticated credit investors within their peer network. Therefore, teachings, the mindsets, the strategies are that of other low net worth lay financially minded people that I would never take financial advice from. It's like, why would you take financial advice from Gary, who's 60 something years old and telling you that you should not keep working so you can get more in social security? That's absolutely the worst financial advice I've heard, but that's very prevalent out there. And that's the golden rule. Never take financial advice from people who are not financially free. Not saying take it from me, take it from some of the people that we have coming to our events, which are not paid speakers, but other people within our community. The next event that we do have coming up is going to be in San Diego in June. That I think that third weekend in June, June 23rd to 25th, get on the email list at simplepassivecashflow.com slash club, and you'll get that announcement as soon as it comes up. Um, which will probably be coming up here in the next, in about a month. So if you guys haven't seen any email announcement or landing page announcing the San Diego event in a month, please shoot us an email come mid-May and we'll get you details on that. But with that, thanks guys for listening and we will see you guys next week. Bye.